You're listening to the Cine Club podcast. I'm standing outside the entrance to St Anne's Well Gardens in Hove on the southeast coast. It's a lovely, crisp, quite cold, sunny morning. And I'm looking at a blue plaque on the gateway to the park just outside the entrance that says St Anne's Well Gardens, site of the film studio, 1897 to 1903 created by George Albert Smith. If I walk through the park around the edges of the footpath there are more plaques. These show people enjoying the park in the Victorian era when this was a very popular resort. At that time there was a spa using the Iron Giving Spring which is still here. Not as vigorous today as it was then and there were open air concerts and hot air balloon displays a monkey house that's gone if i keep walking towards the edge of the park one of these plaques shows a picture of a distinguished looking chap the big resplendent bushy mustache sitting behind a desk and this is the man himself george albert smith i wonder how many of the people there that morning walking their dogs or playing tennis aware that in this nice, unassuming park, some of the most innovative films of the first decade of cinema were made. I wanted to find out more about the amazing work G.A. Smith produced here, so I got in touch with Dr. Frank Gray. My name is Frank Gray, and until recently I was the director of Screen Archive Southeast, a regional film archive, and I'm also an early film historian. Frank wrote the book on this subject. It's called The Brighton School and the Birth of British Film. I asked him how he first became interested in Smith and what was known about him at that time. The then curator of Hove Museum and Art Gallery, he'd come across me somehow, and at the time I was teaching general 20th century, primarily British and European film studies, and he contacted me and said he was thinking of doing an exhibition in early cinema. Would I like to help him in some way? That provided me with the opportunity to get to know the films much better. It was that event in as I remember clear, clearly now, 1989, which really just kind of set my course. You'd go to the BFI library and you'd put in your request, it would be a written request at that time, for information on the filmmaker. And up come with, come with the list. You ask and you get. Oh, there are no books published on him. I don't think there was even a single article. There was a few newspaper references, including his obituary. So I, I instantly became aware that there was just so little known about this man. 89, I had the bug. That was my first decade as a lecturer, and I specialised in art history and film history. And in that time, I was um, I was very committed to European um, film, especially European film of the 20s. You know, and I thought, ooh, ooh, I wonder if I could study Soviet montage. And I had all, I had wonderful ideas, and I used to go on trips to Russia, etc. But um, I just realised that it was that was too complicated. One, I wasn't a Russian linguist, uh, so I know I'd have to crack the language. But I knew that I wanted to find my subject. So it was interesting how the experience at Hove in 1989, it's kind of, yes, yes, this is an adventure to go on. Thanks to Frank's persistent digging, we now know much more. To understand Smith's work, it helps to know a little about Smith the man. He had a fascinating life before picking up a camera. And in many ways, his pre-film career set the scene for the films he would go on to make. 
He begins as a mesmerist, as a stage thought reader, interested in the potential for thought transference. And as a stage mesmerist, he begins at age 19 on the theatre of the Brighton Aquarium. And that essentially is a, you know, it's a stage act. Even though he claimed that he had the, the gift of thought reading, others thought that he was just a performer. I don't know. I think I'll sit on the fence. I'd like to think that he was a gifted thought reader, but, you know, it's... <laughs> and he, he did maintain that he was, didn't he, for, he did. for the rest he, of his life? He did, he did, he did. And he, as this very young man, because of his thought reading performances, he was contacted, either he contacted or was contacted by the Society for Psychical Research, which was a new organization devoted to they call it scientific experiments, but I guess we'd have to be, you could call it quasi-scientific experiments of supernatural activity. What's so, for me, exciting and, and, and very strange is this interest in the supernatural, the kind of the, the world outside of ourselves. And of course, it was an, an, in an era with seances and a fascination with ghosts, the spirit world, the society would go and invest, investigate. But those who participated believe that there were some cases where there was no, the only explanation was that it was a, a, a spiritual event. And so it, it <laughs> there's, there's something just a bit spooky about the way it, you think, oh, not that, no, not that one, not that one. This one, maybe. So he becomes the secretary to the secretary of the Society of Psychical Research, and that's about 83 or so and he continues this relationship with the society he's still on the membership list in the late 1940s so he's part of it for close to 60 years and there's some interesting books which were produced in the early 1890s which document thought transference experiments usually the, like, the little studio we're in now it's to imagine that next door there was someone with a piece of paper who will draw a figure or write a number and we in this room are going to have a number of goes guessing what's on. Now, what's interesting about these experiments, most of them, they never guessed what was written down. But sometimes they did. <laughs> in July 1882, one of Smith's performances was reviewed in the newspaper The Brightonian. The author of this piece was Douglas Blackburn, who would later become a collaborator with Smith in thought transference experiments. He wrote, the crowd was simply enormous, and the excitement and enthusiasm proportionate. Someone calling himself a doctor seized one of the subjects whilst under control, and administered sundry brutal kicks and prickings. And the boy still remaining unconscious, the sceptic had the audacity to denounce him as a fraud. This was too much for the audience, so they threw the interrupter out. In 1892, Smith withdrew from the inner circle of the Society for Psychical Research. On Christmas Eve, he placed an advert in the Brighton Herald newspaper, announcing his acquisition of St. Anne's Well Gardens. Smith gradually added attractions, and some of his touches seem, shall we say, eccentric today, such as an artificial hermit's cave. They were successful, though, and Smith turned St. Anne's into one of Britain's most popular resorts. It's in 1893 which he acquires the lease to St. Anne's Well Gardens. What was it in his bones or in his mind? It's kind of thing. Yeah, what I want is a couple of acres. I want a pleasure garden in which I can do my own thing. <laughs> a phenomenal step for him to take because he had space which he could control. His initial uses of the space 
because he's interested in ticket sales because people are going to come and visit the garden. So it's putting on entertainments. He organizes balloons to arrive. So they're not just overhead, also too, they get tethered. They're attached by a long rope, so you can go up in a balloon. And at the top, then you can take your telescope or your binoculars, and you can view the pleasures of Brighton Hove and look towards the downs one way and the sea the other. What a thing to do. He begins to give outdoor lantern entertainments, competitions they would have, especially the fancy dress competitions with the gardens decorated in fairy lights. There's a lovely term called a heterotopia, which kind of signifies another world. Cemeteries can be heterotopias. In our day and age, we might refer to a theme park being a heterotopia. So he creates his other world. While Smith presided over St Anne's Well, he was also giving Magic Lantern shows. The Magic Lantern was a pre-cinema form of image projection using pictures painted or printed onto glass slides. Whenever I think of the Magic Lantern, I think of this scene from Ingmar Bergman's Cries and Whispers. It's a flashback to a childhood party, and the ant in charge of projection is using the slides to tell the story of Hansel and Gretel, pulling the slides slowly through the projector to emphasise the size of the Wicked Witch's nose. I'm at Hove Museum this morning. Uh, as we heard from Frank earlier, this was an important place for, for him, sending him down the G.A. Smith rabbit hole. And they have a, a great film collection here with artefacts relating to Smith and the other early Hove filmmakers. I'm looking at the moment at the magic lanterns. There's a couple of beautiful magic lanterns, from uh, one's from 1875, one from 1900. And they're really quite big, impressive machines. Uh, beautiful to look at, lots of shiny, what looks like copper and brass, and uh, a small collection of slides next to them too, which are also very beautiful. Some of them look like they might be hand-painted, and it's very easy to imagine Smith standing behind the magic lantern, giving one of his lectures. Smith's experience as a lantern lecturer seems to me the perfect training for a man who would soon become a filmmaker. I asked Frank about the importance of Smith's experience giving magic lantern shows. He starts to become interested in the magic lantern. The most important references to his work as a lanternist are the shows which he embarks on at the Brighton Aquarium, the very same, and the very so therefore the same theatre as he had stood on when he was a mesmerist. But as a magic lanternist, he, inspired by other magic lanternists, he thought that what he would do to um, entertain an audience would be to take them on a tour. And he created this, let's call it a trilogy of lantern lectures. And they were a trip around the world, on the surface of the world, a trip underneath the water, uh, which he called 20 Leagues Under the Sea, which of course instantly connects him to Jules Verne. And finally, a trip to the stars. So he would give the three lectures across the same week. The audience are going on these, let's call them virtual journeys. What's intriguing is that for 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, he transforms himself into Jules Verne. And there are references to him acquiring um, the moustache, the beard. Did he put on a French accent? Well, we'll, we'll never know. He's acting. And of course, um, bring into his show his performance the name of that very famous French author just signifies that he's choosing to connect to Verne and let's call them the Vernistes. Verne was everywhere with H.G. Wells as his English counterpart. Trips to outer space, strange occurrences, magical machines, monsters. So I think that Smith is someone who reveals his interest in altered fiction, different fiction. Stories deal with adventure and maybe more importantly deal with the impossible. Things you can't imagine happen. <laughs> in this other world. In this age, 
of electricity. The world is changing at the end of the 19th century quite dramatically. And in this age of new technology, because the combustion engine, the telephone, Edison's phonograph, this, this is a world which is changing. With all this energy of invention and change, simultaneously, there's the idea that, that we are more, we, we are super powerful too. Very uncanny. In Smith's Lantern lectures then, he connected to popular stories in the public imagination at the time, something he continued to do as a filmmaker. For example, in 1898, he made a film, Now Lost, based on Alexandre Dumas's The Corsican Brothers. The Magic Lantern shows enabled him to connect his interest in the supernatural with entertainment. For Smith, therefore, to be interest, that's, we could even say, embody both this fascination with the supernatural, but then also, too, to be engaged, engaged with that in terms of fiction and, and how someone like Jules Verne is writing these popular narratives which are about this convergence between lost worlds, mysterious worlds, new technologies. It's how Smith, we've seen, is very much part of his time, thinking about the world in a very different way, a fascination with the impossible, the unimaginable, and through the supernatural research of the psychic research, then through popular fiction of the times, which is kind of exploring the impossible. Then a magic lantern show becomes a kind of a, a visual expression of that. How you organize slides. Or choose a subject and then organize slides and then, for example, I am now going to take you now to the bottom of the sea. What will we find there? Things you cannot imagine. This this if you like this is the the, the, the seeds, you know, this is the context in which then that move to film. Film is just a natural and really exciting extension of that. Film arrived in Britain in October 1894 with a display of American films for Edison's Kinetoscope. Just before Easter the following year, Kinetoscopes were placed on Brighton's West Pier and in the Brighton Aquarium, though for very limited periods. Film truly came to town on Wednesday the 25th of March 1896 at the Pandora Gallery on King's Road. Again, the selection was American, probably titles from Edison's Annabelle series of dance films. It didn't take long for filmmakers to come to Brighton and Hove, and Smith was not the first. R.W. Paul, the man who arguably kick-started the British film industry by developing and marketing his own version of Edison's kinetograph camera, made two films on Brighton Beach, and Esme Collings's films were primarily local scenes designed for a Brighton audience. Some of these survive, including Scrambling for Pennies Under the West Pier from 1896, an enchanting film that demonstrates a far stronger sense of composition than the other nascent filmmakers working at this time. Also here at Hove Museum we have a collection of cameras made by Alfred Darling, who was a Brighton-based engineer who developed lots of early camera technology. He made a camera for G.A. Smith in 1896, and there is here in the collection a camera that he made in that same year, an experimental 42mm cine camera. And this was a prototype, it wasn't released commercially. And of course it was for 42mm film. I would assume the one that he made for Smith was for 35 uh, It was an amazing object. It's very big. Uh, it sort of looks a bit like a subwoofer. It's a big wooden box with a hole in the front. Quite amazing to look at. So this wouldn't be the camera that he made for Smith, but perhaps what he made for Smith was not dissimilar. What did Smith film with the camera he acquired in autumn 1896? Sadly, his earliest films are lost, but there is good evidence that initially he made the same kind of local pictures as Collings and Paul. His first films were either December or January, December 1896 or January 
1897. I'm pretty confident probably his one of his first films was of a train arriving at Hove Station. So it, it's 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 shot at winter in you know in winter light. It's middle of the day, cloudless sky, sun coming from the south. So it's like a homage to the most famous train arriving at a station film by the Lumieres. It's about movement and time. It's a familiar modern machine, but to bring it to the screen. So his first film programs where he's showing one or two of his own, others, um, either filmmakers, place becomes the nature of those first programs. In 1897, Smith fully dedicated himself to film. As an aspiring filmmaker, he had one hugely valuable asset, St. Answell Gardens, which became his personal film studio. He converted its pump room into a film processing plant, where he would make copies of his own films, as well as working for other commercial clients. January 1st, 1897, he's built himself a film laboratory. He knows how to process film. Uh, so he knows how to build a darkroom and what to do with an exposed strip, 75 feet of 35 millimeter film. He knows what to do. He also, of course, has learned how to operate a film camera. He's commissioned Alfred Darling, a Brighton mechanical engineer, to make him a camera. So Smith becomes aware of the technology. Between April and November 1897, Smith made 41 films mostly non-fiction actualities, including variations of the train film we've already discussed. But then Smith had a change of direction and started to make a very different sort of film. What distinguished him from his contemporaries was his interest in fiction, and particularly comedy. For Frank Gray, a key influence was Smith's wife, Laura Bailey. Laura was a very established actor. She'd been performing on stages in the southeast since she was a child alongside her three sisters. And she was known as a comic actor. She was specialised in pantomimes. So through his wife, he becomes very connected to a history of pantomime, a history of popular theatre. And what does that bring? Audience. An understanding of an audience. But if Smith only has a minute of time, one minute of time, 60 seconds, how do you make an audience laugh in 60 seconds? To me, you can only do that if you bring to that <laughs> that challenge a history of theatre. And that's exactly why his wife was so important to his work. Smith is a co-creator. I could even go so far as to say we should not refer to them ever as Smith films again. They're films by Bailey and Smith. Albert and Laura Smith. And, and, and it's a true collaboration. Smith's work in film became increasingly inventive, including experiments with trick effects such as double exposure and stop motion. Smith, like his contemporary Georges Méliès, had realised he could use his camera to make people and objects vanish. One particularly significant film from this era is Santa Claus from 1898. This simple, charming film is notable because it demonstrates Smith working up the logic of film editing. As two sleeping children dream of Father Christmas on the left-hand side of the frame, he appears to us on the opposite side, climbing down the chimney, before magically appearing in the children's room to drop gifts into their stockings. This plays like a prototype for cross-cutting. Within one shot, Smith shows us two simultaneous events taking place in separate locations. Then, the following year, Smith made The Kiss in the Tunnel. Films made up of more than one shot were still very new, but the way Smith employed editing in this film was far more sophisticated, even if the film might seem very simple to modern viewers. We open with a view from a train, which enters a tunnel, then cuts to an interior shot in the compartment. A man and a woman take advantage of the darkness and kiss. We then cut back to the exterior shot as the train emerges. We see a couple, male, female, and they kiss in the train compartment, which has gone dark because it's in a tunnel. 
the stage scene in the train carriage, in the train compartment, it is a painted set, and it, the way it um, introduces us to what Russians would later call, you know, creative geography, because the film begins and ends with actual tracks, actual trains, and a real place, and then we go into an imagined place. And to bring that together within the same film, absolutely astonishing. Smith's film actually consisted only of the middle shots in the train compartment. However, surviving catalogue instructions make it clear that it was to be combined with a phantom ride, a film shot from the front of a moving train. The move from interior to exterior was Smith's intention, and opened extraordinary new possibilities in film. As Mark Cousins puts it in his book The Story of Film, this was one of cinema's first attempts to say meanwhile. There was also something voyeuristic in Smith's scene of a stolen kiss. That's the omniscient point of view. Well, the view of God. The initiate point of view is that kind of objective point of view. So we look on at this action. It, it, it is so sophisticated considering how early it is, isn't it? When it's not so long ago that his impulse is to show people the familiar a yes. train coming into Hope yes, Station. Yes, yes. And within months he's thinking, actually, the power of cinema could be I'll show people something that they couldn't ordinarily see. Yes. Something yes. private. But there's something about kind of looking on to this world, to these imagined worlds. But Smith is aware of that. He, so he introduces us to a moment of privacy, private worlds on screen. That couple, they kiss in the darkness. That doesn't bother us because we're omniscient. We can see the, the furtiveness of their kiss. There's, a, there's this unexpected um, sophistication. He just understood that we would follow that. I, su yes. I suppose um, the, the leap of faith is we're... Will audiences get that that's the, the train that we just saw? But what we don't know, Joe, is the role a lecturer would have played. Did a lecturer provide a commentary or not? We'll never know. That was a common practice at the time, yep. wasn't it? Yeah. Right. So yep. you could have had someone kind of narrating to smooth over any confusion. Yes, in, yes, in, yes, yes, yes. Ladies and gentlemen, we're now on a train. And we're about to go into a tunnel. And... Yeah, so what kind of descriptions were provided? In Grandma's Reading Glass in 1900, Smith experimented with subjective point of view shots and, by showing us a view through the grandmother's perspective, cutting to much closer shots. He took this further still with The Little Doctor and the Sick Kitten in 1901, in which he confidently moved his camera, cutting to what we might more or less call a close-up, for no reason other than to show detail. Because everyone else, there is no change of shot type. If you look at the, the work of Melies, look at most, almost all of his contemporaries. Is it all of his contemporaries? Without exception, that camera is not moving. But you, could, you can easily demonstrate the move from the wide shot to the medium shot slash close-up. It changes everything. So it's the understanding that you can do that. The understanding that you can do that and it will work. The mobility of Smith's camera had an impact on the nascent film community. Both Pathé in France and the Edison Company in the US made their own versions of Grandma's Reading Glass. One of Smith's most striking films from this fertile period is As Seen Through a Telescope, which he made in 1900. In As Seen Through a Telescope, we, the audience, we have the strange privilege of looking through that telescope held by that elderly man because we can see through his eye. We can see what he sees. And his highly gendered view of the world, i.e. he's using his telescope, 
to view what he shouldn't be looking at. There, there is a, a young woman's ankle and she's been cycling and her partner husband is just just caressing it. And is he just just flicking off? It's a bit of dust, a bit of dirt. Um, our voyeur watches this. In this film, Smith experimented further with subjective camera. At Hove Museum, assistant curator Alexia Lazou showed me the special device he used to create the telescope effect, a camera in which a metal disc with a hole cut out of it could be inserted in front of the lens. And it would create an effect so that you would just see a, a black screen with a circle in the middle, which would focus your eye on the image that was in the circle. Um, and so this gave the effect, for example, in the film Through a Telescope, you see a man with a telescope and he puts the telescope up to his eye. And then as he does that, the, the, the next frame, you see this black image with the circle. And so immediately the viewer is transported to be seeing exactly the same as what the man looking through the telescope is. So it gives you that immediate feeling of the sort of close-up image. He also used a similar thing with binoculars, where again, you had a sort of shape that was kind of like the two lenses of the binoculars. The view through the telescope in this film demonstrates an even more sophisticated understanding of the innate voyeurism of film spectatorship. It's very sexualized looking. And in an era which was so different from our own, so covered up, the opportunity to just see an ankle, to see her, her lower leg. So it's that lingering look. And of course, it, we're being presented with a male gaze. The way in which the film, if you like, not just exaggerates, but kind of really heightens that whole encounter, that voyeuristic encounter, that, you know, the the activities of a peeping Tom. It just, it heightens it because it's just not part of the fiction, but also to, through the subjective point of view, we become, we become tied in to that point of view. But, but then, as you know, that's not the whole film. So what's very interesting is how we're, we're taken down this route, is if we too become complicit, we see the world through his eye, and as if we are going to share and enjoy the pleasure of this illicit look. But he's caught and he's slapped. <laughs> Which, of course, changes the pleasure of this looking, of this illicit looking. He's not allowed to go on forever. Good behavior, respectful behavior, asserts itself. In a sense, Smith has his cake and eats it. We've been allowed to see this, but then we can still say at the end, oh, you got what you deserved, dirty old man. Yes. We, we've had... We've had both experiences, and the joy of the um, the voyage, voyeuristic nature of cinema is we just watch it all. Nothing ever happens to us. In late 1902, Smith made perhaps his most impressive film, Mary Jane's Mishap. By this point, he was able to make longer films, and this three-minute masterpiece feels like the culmination of all his innovations and preoccupations in film. It incorporates the trick effects of his earlier films, but combines them with ambitious editing. Central to all of this, though, is Smith's wife, Laura Bailey, and her remarkable performance. She's very distinctive. I could go so far and say kind of unique at the time because of the way in which she addresses the camera as if it's an audience, which is very different from, uh, you know, there's a whole tradition within filmmaking. Don't look at the camera. Act as if it's not there. I think it just, it reveals her understanding of how to act for a camera. She also knows too the differences between the kind of the, the way and with the choreography of that film. It, because you have that long shot, it's not that long, but it takes in the view of the whole set. 
with the painted backdrop behind. And then the cut to the closer view. So she's aware of how the film will be edited and also to the importance of effectively performing differently given the nature of the shot. It's quite astonishing that self-consciousness when she's addressing the camera, that just opens the door onto us so easily imagining her on stage, and especially the panto talking directly to those children. There's something of that intimacy which particular actors can generate, especially on a stage. The camera's not being brought closer, and that's the invitation to perform in a different way. It's just not the change of shots, it's also change in performance, given the nature of the camera's position. There's a very early Let's call it a filmic consciousness. It isn't a stage. It is, kind of, but it, it, it's, a, it's a different kind of stage. It's not a theatre. It's for the camera. The camera is it. There's nothing else of importance except the camera and how to perform for it. And the consciousness about performance, but also to the consciousness around what does it mean to conceive of this scene, conceive of this action and then employed different shot types. Mary Jane's mishap marks the end of an era for Smith. He would soon embark on a new journey. One of my regrets is that it's just not because it's the last film which he made of that kind with his wife. It is, it is sad that that was it, because Smith has started to go in a new direction, i.e. the hunt for colour. He decides to leave St Answell Gardens and move to Southwick and build himself and his family a new house. Smith now dedicated himself to kinema colour, a system he develops for shooting and projecting colour film. This new venture grew out of his relationship with a man named Charles Urban. Charles Urban, an American, had been an agent for the Edison Company selling phonographs in the kind of late 1880s, early 90s. Comes to London in, is it 1897? Sets up a company with some other New Yorkers, which they call the Warwick Trading Company and they become a producer and retailer of films. And he develops a relationship with Smith, and Smith ends up processing many of the films, making film prints. He gets very good at it. He's doing all this work in St. Answell Gardens. And it's because of that that he starts to make a lot of money in relative terms. And he's able to buy this large property in Southwick. So his life has become transformed financially through film. But the more he's processing, Yes, his income's going up. But through all this time, is of course, he's developing his interest in Charles Urban. And it's Urban who becomes aware of a new colour system which wasn't successful. And it was a three-colour system devised by these two gentlemen, surnames Lee and Turner. And they had been inspired by the work of Frederick Ives in his chromoscope, which was a three-colour process to view photographs, stereoscopic photographs. And it was an additive process that by separating the three colours, using the three primary colours, that you could you effectively could take either a, a photograph or, with Lee and Turner's work, a film using this three colour separation. But they couldn't get it to work because they couldn't get the three colours to combine on screen. And this is 1901, 1902. And then Urban buys them out, brings it to Smith and says to Smith, could you make a colour system? And Smith, who works quite closely with Alfred Darling, who was the Brighton mechanical engineer and had made for Smith his first film camera, they then begin to work on a two-colour as opposed to a three-colour system. And that starts in 1902, and when he moves to Southwick, he builds a laboratory in the back of his house, calls it Laboratory Lodge, and that becomes the home of Kinemacolor. And the experiments conducted there, it's not commercially, the first commercial launch of trade show is 1908. So he is spending six years working on Kinemacolor, and early on, 
There's a letter he writes to Urban in 1904, which he says he thinks he's got it, but it's only going to be two colours. At Hove Museum, Alexia showed me one of the Kinemacolor cameras designed by Smith and explained how it worked. Okay, so we're looking now at a Kinemacolor camera. It's from 1910. So could you briefly describe how the Kinemacolor system works? Um, yeah, so you've got the camera and then in, in between the lens and the film, there's a rotating circular disc which is split in half and it has a filter color filter so one half is red and one half is green and this rotates um, very fast as the film's running through the camera and it means that the frames are alternately filmed through a red filter or a green filter and this gives different sort of shades of gray so that you don't necessarily you won't get the same view of it's not like one black and white film so then what you do is after you've developed the film you then project it through a projector which has a, a similar filter wheel but you have to sort of line it up so that you get the bits that were filmed through the green filter have to be projected through the green filter on the projector and then what you see on screen is not actually so it's not actually color film it's still just black and white film but because it's projected through these color filters what you see on screen is a kind of flickering red and green effect but because it goes so fast it sort of tricks your eye into thinking that you're actually seeing color image on screen. Much of Smith's work for Kinemacolor is now lost, though the films that do survive suggest a very different mode of filmmaking from that he had pursued at St Anne's Well. Smith's contribution to Kinemacolor in terms of production was primarily views of places and familiar activities, so that they're not different from those two Smith films which have been restored by the Cinematheque in Bologna. One is called Fording the River and the other is called The Harvest. So they are films in which the subjects have been chosen to reveal the nature of the technology. If you like, the impetus for the films is kind of Ooh, that's interesting. So they are very different from the films which he makes from 1897 to 1903. Did he make any comedies for Kid of a Colour? I don't think so. All I can refer to is those films which his name is attached. So I'm not sure whether there may have been other films he made which might have been very similar to his early work, but his name's not attached, so there's some doubt about what he made. So I think they're demonstration films. He made films of Brighton Beach when the Kinemacolor opens its studio in Nice, southeast France. He goes out there and films um, annual kind of summer gala and kind of parade and kind of he film films. So it's revealing how the world looks through this new two-colour system. Despite Kinemacolor's enormous success, the quest for colour marked the beginning of the end of Smith's filmmaking career. Smith has this, it's a new adventure. And of course, colour, as also was at the very same time in photography, this was the next big step. With with Urban effectively paying the bills, Urban was the, the entrepreneur behind Smith's work on Kinemacolor. What's the prize? You create a viable colour system which will transform cinematography and you'll be unique in the field. Everyone else will be in black and white and you'll be in colour. There are royal performances, there's coverage, you know, there are reports of being taken to Paris and the Lumiere brothers seeing it. From 1908, it's being shown in Europe, across Europe, it goes to New York, and then Urban starts to license it. So that becomes Kinemacolor the United States, Kinemacolor Japan, under royal patronage. It's the colour system. It's the the company, the new company, the natural Kinemacolor company, with Smith and Urban, they become the company which films the funeral of King Edward. 
the investiture of the Prince of Wales, the coronation of George and Mary, and the great Indian trip, which culminated with the Delhi Durbar. These are all the Kinema Color films, and they have their own cinema, and they're creating three-hour programs with an orchestra. You know, this is, this is fantastic. What he couldn't have foreseen, though, underneath the commercial world are always your competitors and those who would love to see you fail. So William Freeze Green and a Mr. Spear of Brighton, they think they also can devise a colour system. And they take Kinemacolor to court. And it goes right through the House of Lords. And Kinemacolor loses. And so they lose their patent, the 1906 patent, which was in Smith's name. So Kinemacolor effectively comes to an end. That marks pretty much the professional end of George Albert Smith. Because there's nowhere to go. That's what I would argue. He did, in 1922, he came up with a variant of Kinemacolor, which he hoped would crack it. But it was never taken up commercially. He remained an obscure figure until the 1940s, when the French film historian George Sedoul gave him and his fellow Hove pioneers the group name The Brighton School. He lived to be 95 and died in 1959. If you're listening to this podcast and the date was released, then today would have been Smith's 160th birthday. Happy birthday, George. I'll give the last word to Frank for an insight into how Smith saw out his retirement. As, as was told to me by someone, he's on um, Hove Seafront. And um, he um, had his telescope and he just liked looking. Well, was he looking at the sky or was he looking at people? <laughs> You've been listening to the first episode of the Cine Club podcast. Thanks for listening. And huge thanks to Frank and Alexia for their time and their expertise. It was great talking to them. As this is the first episode, I'm not sure how frequently I'll be able to put podcasts out or exactly what form they'll take. Some might be more of a straight up conversation with a guest. Uh, We'll see. Episode two is already in the works. I'd love to hear what you thought of this episode. You can find CineClub on Instagram at CineClubBlog or Twitter or X at CineClubBlog. Or the best place to find me is on Substack, cineclub.substack.com. That's C-I-N-E-C-L-U-B.substack.com. This is also my blog where you can find my writing on various film-related topics. It's kind of all over the map. You can find stuff on skateboarding, on film and video, romance comedies, and Henri-Georges Clouseau, amongst others. You can also find show notes for the podcast there, including a full bibliography, links to the films we discussed, and more. You've been listening to the Cine Club podcast. I'm Joe Tyndall. Thanks again, and goodbye.